Open in your copies of the Bible to the New Testament book of 1 Timothy, chapter 1. If you're visiting with us this morning, uh, you should know that we've been, in the last few weeks, learning from Paul's first letter to Timothy. Timothy being a young pastor in a city called Ephesus, present-day Turkey. The city's still there, the church is not. But there are still Christians in that region. In fact, we are supporting a missionary family who are soon off to Turkey to live there, raise their children there, and be gospel proclaimers there. They have asked me not to mention their name in public, uh, especially over the airwaves. Uh, and so if you want to know who they are, pray more specifically. Uh, ask me. There's some prayer cards uh, at the table there to remind you. Uh, they would really appreciate your prayers. And the reason why they don't want to have airwaves is because uh, Christianity is not necessarily welcomed in Turkey. And they actually uh, will be endangered if it's publicly known that their intent is to share the gospel. But they're going. With a handicapped child, they're going. And two smaller ones yet. First Timothy chapter 1 is our text. And uh, the portion we're looking at this morning is what gave bread to us beginning at verse 12, and we're stopping short of verse 20. And before we get into the text, let me just tell you of a story uh, of a young man I met a few years ago, a very pleasurable meeting. Um, I got to know this young man named Austin. His life was transformed by Jesus Christ. Austin worked as a paralegal uh, in a Jewish lawyer's office not too far from here in New Jersey. And as a paralegal making good money, again, for this Jewish lawyer, uh, he developed a substance abuse habit. He uh, got turned on to cocaine, and eventually there were other substances as well. Austin became a terrible person. Um, a terrible person living among, then, of course, terrible people in the worst part of the community. And eventually, as he got more and more addicted to uh, his drugs, uh, he became a seller as well. Uh, in order to keep up with his own need, he needed more money, and so he began to sell. In his words, he said, I did not hang out with bad people. I was the bad people others hung out with. In other words, he's telling me that he was the worst in the crowd. And eventually his addiction caught up with him, and, and he found himself sleeping in his car. He could no longer pay the rent because he was spending all his money on his uh, addiction. Um, his life spiraled downward more so, um, to the point where he had to connivingly ha uh, uh, steal from his, his boss, the Jewish lawyer. Things got worse and worse. And eventually, his boss caught him stealing. He took a substantial amount of money from her. And she gave Austin two options. She said, Austin, either you can go to jail or go to rehab. What do you think Austin chose? He chose rehab. <laughs> but his boss said, I choose the rehab center you're going to. And she chose a Christian. Now, Jewish lawyer, had nothing to do with Christ, has no flavor, no inkling towards Christianity, 
she chose a Christian rehabilitation center in upstate New York. And he went. He was forced to go. And there he heard the gospel. There he was cleaned of his addiction. There he gave his life to Christ. There his life was transformed. And today, Austin is a young pastor of a church in a suburb outside of Philadelphia. Completely, radically different person. You would enjoy your conversations with him. So much so that on occasion, I call him to say, hey, Austin, how are you doing? And I just listen to how he tells me what God is doing in his life and in his church. He's got this fervor for sharing the gospel that makes him just want to talk about telling others about Christ. And then he reminds me, you remember who I was? I say, I, I remember very well, Austin. I remember very well. But that's not who I am anymore. He makes that clear. God is using him tremendously. It's the power of the gospel to transform a life. Now, most of us do not have testimonies that are so exciting. Mine, personally, is rather dull. And I thank the Lord for that. <laughs> I'm so glad that I was never sleeping in my car, that I was never addicted to cocaine or anything else, not even caffeine. The Lord has kept my life dull in that sense. And boy, has it been exciting. Here in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12 and forward, the Apostle Paul presents his story of transformation. Here, the Apostle Paul affirms the gospel message once again. Yes, you would expect him to do that. But he does so in the form of a personal, personal testimony. Uh, Paul had been talking to us, if you remember, two weeks ago, Paul had been talking to us about some of the dangers that had infiltrated the church there in Ephesus. As young as the church was, there was already people coming in and teaching things that were not true. didn't take much time. And then there were people who were practicing, doing certain things, living certain lifestyles that were way outside of the boundaries of God's word. And Paul says, this is happening within our church here in Ephesus. And he warns Timothy that he needs to do something about it. Timothy, you need to speak to these people. You need to challenge them with the truth of the gospel of Christ. And there, Paul gives to us in that chapter, beginning at around verse 9 to 11, he gives us a list of certain behaviors, certain ways of living that are certainly against the word of God. And some of these you'll look and say, well, they're not so bad. And some of you will say it's not bad at all because that's what our culture says. Oh, that's not a sin. But let me just remind you once again, as I did two weeks ago, God's word does not change. And what is true then is true today. And please never think that you are more compassionate than God. If God says it's wrong, it's wrong. And he says so compassionately because he wants us to live rightly. Because when we live rightly, he blesses. We are blessed when we live within the parameters of God's word. It's not because we're better people, but it's those parameters actually are good for us. It'll bring you health. It'll bring you spiritual health. It'll bring you satisfaction and pleasure. And so Paul says that these are the facts, and this is what needs to be done. 
And now he gives a personal testimony of what God has done for him. Now, these people who had come into the church were not only dangerous to themselves, but they were dangerous to the church itself. And so when Paul points this out, please notice this. Paul is not saying, well, look at these awful sinners. He does not have a, I'm a better person than you attitude. Far from it. Far from it. He's not pointing his finger saying, you, 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 and you, you better shape up. Be more like me. He's not doing that at all. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Here he gives his testimony of the power of the gospel. Under the phrase, the gospel entrusted to me. Because of the gospel entrusted to me. Verse 11. So, in absolute wonder, the Apostle Paul speaks of what Christ has done for him. And Paul presents himself as an example. An example of the wondrous, life-giving, transformative power of the gospel of grace to all sinners. He has experienced this wonder. Therefore, he preaches this marvel and he wants you to know its power. And that's what we have here in our text this morning. And so Paul explains in amazement that Christ would rescue someone even like him. And so the first of my three points this morning is just that. His amazement. The wonder of it all. It's in verses 12, 13, and 14. And there you'll notice that Paul is amazed that he would be forgiven. He writes, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He's amazed that he would be forgiven. And so he keeps speaking about what Christ did for him. In fact, if you read through that text, you'll see that 11 times he refers to I or me. Look what Christ has done for me, 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 me. I can't believe it. He's astounded. And he says, the Lord has given me strength. The Lord entrusted the gospel message to him. And he's amazed. In fact, here he he notes that God entrusted him with the gospel, and then God has empowered him or made him equal to the task of carrying out the gospel message, the gospel job. And so verse 12, he says, I thank him because he judged me faithful. Now, notice here, I think this is important. Paul is not saying that God entrusted the gospel to me because he thought so highly of me. He thought of me as being so faithful. Well, there's a man I can trust. (laughs) No, no, that would contradict the the whole of the passage. He's not amazed that God would consider him worthy of being a servant of Christ, uh, uh, so much uh, that he is amazed that God would entrust to him the gospel. So you're going to give me the gospel? I can think of other people who would do a better job. We're more deserving. You would give it to me? He's amazed that God would then make him a servant as a result of being entrusted the gospel. Now, notice something here I think is 
rather interesting, and I think you'll agree, that the, the Apostle Paul doesn't say here, I'm amazed that you would make me a leader in the church. That's not what he said. I'm amazed that you would make me the foremost preacher in the New Testament church. Didn't say that. I'm amazed that you would make me the most significant writer of the New Testament. No, he didn't say that either. I'm amazed that you would make me an apostle. No, he didn't say that. He said, I'm amazed that you would make me a servant. I'm amazed that I would have a lowly position as one who would serve others. One who would have to roll up his sleeves, or better yet, back then, gird up his loins. And meet people at their deepest needs and serve them, all while subjugating himself to the authority of Christ. I'm amazed that you would choose me. Notice something about the apostle here, which I think we all need to learn. Paul is amazed because he is unworthy of this greatest treasure. Here's a problem most of us face. We would echo those words, well, I don't deserve it. But then we would say, I am sort of worthy of it, though. Certainly I'm more worthy than you name the person. We think very highly of ourselves. And if not highly, highly enough. And that's why the gospel message doesn't amaze us. We think, well, Jesus... (laughs) You did pretty well in picking me. Paul says, I'm amazed that you would make me a servant and entrust me to be faithful with the message of the gospel and serve you as I serve his church. And so he has this deepest gratitude for how God treats him. He realizes that the incarnation of Jesus Christ has led to the redemption of this man. And so at verse 13, to make it very clear why he's amazed, he gives his resume. He says, I was a blasphemer. That is, I denied the divinity of Jesus Christ. I was a persecutor of the church. That is to say that Paul was a hunter who crossed borders even to run down Christians. In Galatians 1.13, he says, I persecuted the church of God violently, and I tried to destroy it. And then he describes himself as an insolent opponent. To be insolent means that you are arrogant and rude. But in reality, that one word in Greek, insolent opponent, is even stronger. It conveys the idea of a violent, arrogant, rude opponent. A violent one. It's akin to what we see in the Holocaust. Now, obviously, the Apostle Paul did not kill as many people as the Nazi regime did, but it was that same sort of thing, that same sort of brutality. He violently took their lives. In fact, in Acts chapter 8, verse 3, uh, Saul, that was his Jewish name, Paul being his his Greek name, he says, but Paul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison, of course, in anticipation of execution. That was the Apostle Paul. 
If you saw Paul coming and you wore a cross around your neck, you would run. Imagine applying for a job with this sort of resume. Well, tell me about yourself, Paul. Well, I used to be a blasphemer, persecutor, a violent opponent. Can I come preach next Sunday? <laughs> the Apostle Paul believed that he was on the outer fringes of God's mercy. And he saw anyone else was more likely eligible to receive the mercy of God. Anybody but him. Any one of you but him. But look at what he says. He says, but I, verse 14, but I received mercy. I received mercy. And then he goes on, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. But I received mercy, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. God's grace lavished the Apostle Paul's soul. You know, to lavish means you get more than what you need. Right? Whenever I, I hear about the lavishing grace of God, I think of a root beer float. And how it just bubbles up and then it overflows. And as an adult, I'm like, oh no, that's horrible, how messy. But as a child, I say, well, all that is for me? Wow, look at overflow. And that's for me. Here, the grace of God is being lavished on him. It is washing over him. It is an abundance of grace. And what we see in this verse is the trilogy of our salvation. You have grace, you have faith, you have love. Grace provides your salvation. Faith appropriates your salvation. Love applies salvation. Or better yet, grace is the means of your salvation. Faith makes salvation mine. And love is the result of salvation. I like how Kelly notes, he writes that this is the visible expression of a living relationship with the Savior. Grace, faith, and love. And so at the very end of verse 13, he writes, But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. It looks a little cheeky here on Apostle Paul's part. Sounds like he's saying, well, you know, I, I received grace and mercy and, uh, because I kind of deserved it. I, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. Please notice here that the Apostle Paul is not excusing his sin. He is not saying, well, I was ignorant, therefore I'm not guilty. No, quite the opposite. He is saying that God's grace and mercy came to him, not because he deserved it, but yes, he was ignorant, but he was also guilty. What he did was certainly sinful, deeply so. However, it is not unpardonable. It is not unforgivable. Scholar Gordon Fee writes that Paul's conduct is not thereby less culpable or grotesque because of his ignorance. The distinction that the Apostle Paul makes here is between knowingly and unknowingly 
being a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent of the church. Here, Paul is explaining why he became an object of God's mercy rather than God's wrath. And he's referring to what we see in the Old Testament law in Numbers chapter 12, beginning at verse 22. And there we are taught uh, in the Old Testament law in regards to sins that were done unintentionally, sins done in ignorance. And of course, it's referred to in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 7. And there we see that in the Old Testament, the high priest would make an annual atonement for unintentional sins for the people of God. Unintentional sins were atoned for. But please understand that only because it was done in ignorance doesn't make it less sinful, doesn't make it less grotesque. But here Paul says it was not willfully. I I did not realize how wrong I was. It was in ignorance. This is the same kind of sin that Jesus Christ, when he was hanging from the cross, recorded in Luke 23, Jesus Christ said, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. And yet, they were wrong. They were sinful. They were guilty. It was grotesque. Forgiveness for sins that were done in ignorance. So Paul here is not, uh, not in innocence, but in ignorance. Paul here is not saying that he is innocent. He is simply describing what kind of sin he is guilty of. Sins committed in ignorance. And he says, again and again, I was shown mercy. I was shown mercy. What is mercy? Mercy. Well, the Sunday school definition of mercy is that God does not give me what I deserve. God has pity on me. He does not give to me what I deserve. What is grace? Well, the Sunday school answer is that God gives to me what I do not deserve. God gives me what I don't deserve. He gives me of his benefits. Paul is explaining to us here that God despite all his sin, despite the depth of his sin, despite the ugliness of his sin, yes, done in ignorance, God gave him new eyes to see, gave him a new life, even though he did not deserve it. That's mercy, that's grace. Now, as you well know, I trust you know, the Apostle Paul was a very zealous person before he became a Christian. When he was the Pharisee Saul, he was a very zealous person. But zeal is not enough. He was very zealous, but he was also very mistaken. He was very wrong. Now, Paul is not only zealous, he is zealous for what is true. There is high potency for zeal and truth together. Now, many of you have zeal, but you lack truth. And many of you, maybe more of you, have truth, but you lack zeal. What you need is both, zeal and truth. And you will be amazed to see what God will do in your life and through your life. When you take zeal for the things of God 
and the truth of God and combine them together in your heart. Verses 15 through 19 tells us that there is no limit to the grace of God. There you see my second point. There is rescue for all. And Paul begins at verse 15, he says, here's a worthwhile saying. And if you've been reading with me through 1 Timothy, you know that this is the first of three times in this book that he says, here's a worthwhile saying, which means it's worthwhile that we pay attention. And he gives the gospel message. He says, Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Paul is not saying, oh, look at these awful sinners, verses 9, 10, and 11. What terrible people they are. He is simply saying, beware, because these sins do exist, unfortunately, in the church of Christ, and they will cause harm in the church. Beware. You need to do something, Pastor Timothy. But Christ came to save sinners, like these people in the church. I can't tell you how many times people have told me, I don't go to church because there's hypocrites. I said, exactly. (laughs) Once I said, you know, and if you come, there'll be one more. (laughs) That didn't go over too well. Yes, we are sinners. I'm not proud of it. But Christ came to save sinners. And that's you. That's me. That's us. These are exactly the people Christ came to save. There is a list for you, verses 9, 10, 11. But Paul, in verse 15, he says, Jesus came to save sinners. But look at what he says. Of whom I am the foremost. Surprised? Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I am the worst of all. He's not using hyperbole here. Uh, This is not self-deprecating morbidity. What Paul is explaining is his own personal experience. Now notice something I think is interesting as well. He does not say of whom I used to be, of who I was. He says, I am. I am the worst. Paul realizes he's still a sinner. And he realizes the depth of his sin. And it breaks his heart. It troubles him. He hates his sin. And that's the problem with sin. We hate it, but we love it. And he realizes he keeps going back to it. Yes, these are the words of the Apostle Paul, but they are also the words inspired by the Holy Spirit inscribed here. This is Paul's perception of himself. I am the worst of sinners. That is to say that he's worse than all those people described in those verses just before. You know, when you read those verses, 9, 10, 11, it sounds like he's so judgmental. And then you read verse 15, and it's quite the opposite. 
He's not being judgmental. He's just laying down the facts. He's saying these things exist and they ought not to. But keep in mind that I'm the worst. And like me, you need to struggle against your sin. The gospel is to the Apostle Paul more than just an interest. It's more than just something I possibly need. What we see in the Apostle Paul is that the gospel pulsates in his soul. It throbs in his conscience. It drives him. He has embraced the gospel. He lives the gospel. He breathes the gospel. And this is the great transformation because this is exactly what he was not before. Paul moves from death to life, from having religious zeal to zeal for the truth, from someone who kept all the laws. Remember, he was a Pharisee. In fact, Pharisees would stay away from anybody who was known to be a sinner. Oh, I won't even dine with you. I won't associate with you. I'll never sit at a table with you because I'm too righteous. And now the Apostle Paul realizes, here's the transformation. He realizes that I'm the worst person at the table. I'm the sinner I refuse to sit with. He sees the depth of his brokenness. And so again, verse 16, he says, but I received mercy. And he tells us why he received mercy. Look at verse 16. The Apostle Paul explains that he received mercy because of who he is. He's the worst of sinners. And he was rescued. He says that in me, the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. He explains that he received mercy so that others would see Christ's perfect patience and would see the willingness of Jesus Christ to forgive the greatest of sinners so that those who are yet to be saved would believe in Christ and receive eternal life. As they witnessed the worst of sinners being saved, they could say, well, then I can be rescued. I can be forgiven too. If Paul could, then I can. My friends, God is good. And therefore, he is great. We usually see it the other way around. God is great, and therefore, he is good. But let me put a twist on that this morning. God is great, yes. And God is good, yes. But he is good, and therefore he is great. His goodness allows him to be great towards us. Do not overlook God's greatness toward you. God wants you to see his willingness to rescue you from your sins. If he's willing to save and forgive the Apostle Paul, he is willing and able to save you. And so he says, come. So what began as an act of thanksgiving, look there at verse 12, it says, I thank him who has given me strength. What began as an act of thanksgiving has now moved into a personal testimony of God's abundant mercy, and it concludes with 
a doxology, with a song of worship. Now, twice in this letter, the Apostle Paul breaks out in song. Twice. He's so overwhelmed by these realities that he just begins to sing. How can I keep from singing your praise? Maybe that's happened to you. When you consider who God is and what he's done for you, when you look at your own soul and you say, wow, me, Lord, you would do that for me? You would save my soul? You can do nothing but sing. And the Apostle Paul breaks out in music. And look at the song lyrics he chooses. He writes, To the king of the ages, that is, the ruler in every era of history, to the eternal God, that is, the one who will never see an end. To the immortal God, that is, the one who is incorruptible or imperishable. The invisible God, that is, the one who can never be known unless he reveals himself to you, and he has through his word. The only God, that is, there is no other but him. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That is the only response we could come up with when we consider who God is. And as Paul is writing this, and there's probably a scribe, it's probably Mark. He's writing this. I could just see Mark looking at Paul and saying, oh, I see what you mean, Paul. I echo those sentiments, Paul. And penning this letter. Well, lastly, my friends, notice here the charge that Paul gives to, to Timothy. It's verses 18 and 19. Uh, the charge, of course, is first to Timothy. He says, I entrust to you, uh, to Timothy, my child. But it's not just a charge to Timothy. It's a charge to the entire church in Ephesus. Better yet, it's a charge to us. It's a charge to me, it's a charge to you. A responsibility handed first from God to Paul, Paul to Timothy, Timothy to Ephesus, Ephesus to us. It reads, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. In other words, Timothy, be diligent, live up to the words spoken about you, live up to the affirmations made about you that has led you to this point, to this stage in your life. And why do you need to live up to those words? So that you can, quote, wage the good warfare. So that you can wage the good warfare. That is so that you can be valiant in the battle for the kingdom of God. There are many battles we can fight. There's no shortage of battles we can fight. And some of them are more worthy than others. But here's the battle the Christian is called to fight. The good fight. The good warfare. That is the warfare for the kingdom of God. The warfare for the truth of Christ. Timothy, if you are going to keep fighting this fight, you're going to have to live up to those callings, those affirmations made of you. So that you can... Fight the good fight. Fight the good battle. Fight the good warfare. 
So why is the Apostle Paul so grateful? I guess that's up to me to answer, not for you, correct? Actually, that's my job. Paul is grateful because he did not presume that he was worthy of being embraced by God. He did not presume that he was. He knew himself. He knew what he had done in the past. He was also very aware of what he is capable of being, of doing. And therefore he was grateful. And he says, I, 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 in light of all that, yet Christ still loves me. Yet Christ still embraces me. Yet Christ still forgives me. Yet Christ still makes me his own. I am adopted into the family of God and given eternal life. How can I keep from singing? How can I keep from being grateful? Hold it. Let me stop there. If you're ungrateful, this is a red flag. Right now. How can I keep from being grateful when I consider what God has done for me? And this not only makes them grateful, but it also makes them humble. My friends, when you lose your interest in the things of God, when that happens, maybe it's happening now. (laughs) Maybe this message has been 25 minutes too long for you already. When you lose your interest in the things of God, go back in your heart's mind and count what Christ has forgiven you of. Go back and look at what God has forgiven you for. And you'll begin to sing. Paul's words to Timothy here are a bold declaration that Christ saves sinners like you. And that he welcomes you into his arms even now. His perfect love, his perfect patience, waits to pour out mercy and grace and love and faith unto you. You do not have to run any longer. Be still. Hear his voice and come to Christ. And you too will be transformed. Let's respond by singing, if you will. We're going to end our service this morning by singing hymn number 25, Immortal, Invisible. Hymn number 25. Let's stand together. And speak some of the very words Paul quoted in his letter to Timothy. 